The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Awesome, awesome, awesome. <clears throat> My voice is still a little hoarse from Monday night. How many of you were here for our Feast of Trumpet celebration? Man, that was a party. I don't think I've ever been in a worship service with a hundred glowing, huge orbs bouncing around the sanctuary, confetti cannons going off. It was a lot of fun. If you weren't here, you got to come back next year because it is insane. Um, but the party continues tonight. We're in Ephesians chapter one. And I want to begin by just reading through the first 14 verses. And by the way, keep in mind as I'm reading through this, that from verse three, all the way down to verse 14, which is the verses we're going to be covering tonight. That's one sentence in the Greek language. It's like Paul gets going, and like any good preacher, once he gets going, he just gets in the flow, and he is having trouble stopping. And so it's just 206 words in the Greek language, just boom, this is what God's done for you. Boom, this is what God's done for you. Boom, this is who you are in Christ. And he gets on a roll. And it's going to be a lot of fun tonight. It's a little bit like drinking from a fire hose uh, in a spiritual way. And that's going to be a lot of fun. So keep that in mind, OK? Beginning in verse 1, Paul says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Can somebody just say hallelujah to that? For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is God's word, and it is good. So Paul identifies himself in verse 1 as the author of this 
epistle, which just basically means letter. And he begins by identifying himself as Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And by the way, you should know that there are 13 letters in the New Testament that begin just like this one, with the apostle Paul identifying himself. That's roughly half of the New Testament that was written by Paul. And he calls himself an apostle by the will of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, which if you know anything about his background and his story, you know what a miracle that sentence is. Because in a, in a former life, if you will, Paul had been the furthest thing from an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was an enemy of Jesus Christ. He spent his time arresting Christians and persecuting churches. But then one day, he had a dramatic experience, a God encounter on the Damascus Road. And he was knocked off his horse by a blinding light. And he had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And it forever changed his life. For one thing, it changed his name. Prior to that moment, he was known in his prayer life as Saul of Tarsus. Saul, named after the first king of Israel. Saul means asked for, sought after. But Jesus changes his name there in that moment to Paul. Paul means small. But it wasn't just his name that was changed. So was his mission, his purpose. He went from arresting Christians to becoming one. He went from persecuting churches to planting churches. And he would go all over Europe. And everywhere he went, he would preach the gospel. He would talk about Jesus. He would plant churches and raise up disciples. And in one of those missionary journeys that he took, he came to a place called Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a major metropolitan city in the ancient world. It was home to about a quarter of a million people. And by ancient standards, that was absolutely huge. It was a port city, and it was known for its, its uh, industry and its trade. But it was also known as a very religious place. And there were various holy sites and shrines dedicated to various deities scattered throughout Ephesus. But the main deity, the main attraction, if you will, in Ephesus was the temple to the goddess Diana. And these local artisans had built a niche for themselves in creating these carved idols that they would sell to people who would come to visit Diana. And, and they'd kind of created this whole cottage industry. It was thriving around the worship of the goddess Diana. Well, then Paul comes on the scene. He starts healing people. He starts preaching the gospel. People start getting saved. In fact, it tells us in the book of Acts that they would take even his, his handkerchiefs that were sweaty from him preaching, and they would lay them on the sick people, and they would get healed. That's the power of God showing up in Ephesus. In fact, so many people started getting saved in Ephesus that at one point in Acts 19, we read about this, this event where all these new believers got together. And just as a sign of their repentance, they brought all of their little carved idols of, of Diana that they had bought from these local artisans. And they brought all their books on witchcraft and sorcery. And they had this huge bonfire. And they started throwing their idols into the fire. And it was this radical testimony to the power of God at work in the city of Ephesus. It was transforming the city. Well, as you might imagine, the local artist skilled, who was making quite a good living off of these little idols, didn't like that. They didn't like what was happening. And they stirred up the city. They stirred up this mob, this right. And they 
filled the ancient Colosseum with people, and they were just trying to get them to go after Paul. And the point of that whole story is, is this. There was an uproar in the city of Ephesus. The entire economy was turned on its head because of the power of the gospel. And as I was reading about this ancient city and the work that God did there, my heart was stirred as I thought about our city, the city of San Diego. And I started to think, man, how cool would it be if God showed up in such dramatic way? So many people started getting saved in San Diego that the, the strip clubs and the adult bookstores and the, the bars and the, and the dispensaries all had to shutter their doors and they had to close up shop and they had to move out of town because so many people were turning from sin and they were turning to Jesus and they were getting rid of that stuff. Wouldn't that be cool? You can get excited. I know this is church. It's not a library. We can have fun in church. And so it got me excited about that. But all that to say, that's the kind of impact that the Apostle Paul had in this town or this city called Ephesus. Now, most places that Paul visited, he would only stay a handful of weeks, maybe a couple of months. But Ephesus was different. Paul stayed there over two and a half years, roughly. And during that time, he raised up disciples. He taught the Bible in this school of Tyrannus. And a beautiful, thriving church was planted. And so as we read through the letter to Ephesians, we're reading about this, this love letter that Paul is writing to these believers that he knew well, that he'd raised up, and that he wanted to see thrive in their Christian faith. And so the tone of the letter is very warm and personal in nature. As it pertains to the theme of the book, there are essentially two halves to the book. You can cut it right down the middle. Chapters one through three deal with our position in Christ, our identity, if you will, in Christ, who you are because you're a believer, the gifts, the benefits, and the blessings of walking in relationship with God. That's chapters one, two, and through your position. And then in chapters four, five, and six, Paul turns his attention and gets really practical. And he says, in light of who you are, this is how you ought to then live. This is how those truths ought to impact your daily lives. See, it can't just be uh, something that we intellectually assent to. Our faith has to work its way into our shoe leather and impact the way we live. You could say that the first three chapters are about the wealth of the believer. And the second three chapters are about the walk of the believer. So the first half, the wealth of the believer, and the second half deals with our walk. And the order is so important, guys. And here's why. Because until you know who you are in Christ and the rights and the privileges that position gives you, you won't know how to live out your faith. You can't properly walk out your Christian life until you have sat in the blessings of it. Now, the word that Paul uses to describe the wealth that we've been given in Christ, he, he talks about this word blessing. He uses it a lot. In fact, in verse 3, he talks about how God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. If you jump down to verse 14, he talks about how all of these blessings are our inheritance, which is kind of a cool way to think about it. You've been blessed immensely, immeasurably, and it is your spiritual inheritance. Did you know that right now, 
there are literally billions of dollars worth of unclaimed inheritances in the United States. We're talking about assets, valuables, properties, cars, all kinds of things that are just sitting there waiting for the rightful owner to come along and claim them. And there are websites dedicated to this. You can look it up. Don't do it now, but wait till after church and you can see if somebody has left you in their will an inheritance. Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, can you think of anything better? Oh, wow. Bill Gates, you know, just named me as the sole benefactor in his will. I was thinking about that. Like, what if Bill Gates decided he was going to entrust his wealth to you. And then I got down into the rabbit hole of how rich this guy is. Somebody asked me, how rich is he? Go ahead. How rich is he? Try it again. How rich is he? Bill Gates is so rich. I'm so glad you asked. He's so rich that he makes about $1,300 a second. <laughs> what? That means that if he saw a $100 bill sitting there on, a gr- on the ground, it would be a waste of his time to bend over and pick it up. Because the time that, by the time it took him to do that, he would have already made you know, 1,300 times as much. He's literally making money faster than he can spend it. His net worth is greater than the gross domestic product of Luxembourg, Estonia, and Bolivia combined. He's so rich. Somebody asked me again, how rich is he? He is so rich that he could give every single person living on the planet $15 and still have a cool $28 billion left over. And yet, as rich as Bill Gates is, his wealth is nothing compared to God's. Amen? God's like, you got a Gulf Stream? I got galaxies. How about that? You know, God, I love this quote by By Abraham Kuyper, he said this about God's wealth. Listen, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. (laughs) He owns all of it. And he's given us, as his kids, access to all of his spiritual blessings. Did you catch that in verse 3? It says, we've been given every spiritual blessing. Now, it's, I want to be careful to point out that the, the blessings that we have access to in Christ are spiritual in nature. You see, the problem with the wealth that Bill Gates has is that it's limited to the physical realm. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against physical blessings. And I love all of the physical blessings. If God wants to give me any physical blessings, I am open to receiving those. But as great as those kinds of blessings are, I think you'll agree with me when I say the greatest blessings aren't physical, but rather spiritual in nature. You see, physical blessings can impact your life here on Earth, but spiritual blessings can impact your life here and your eternal soul for all of eternity. With physical blessings, it's, it's located and restricted to the here and now. But in spiritual realities, when God blesses your soul, it affects you both now and forevermore. And that's why I'm glad that Paul said he's blessed us in every way with all the spiritual blessings that are located in the heavenly realms. That's our inheritance, never to fade, never to spoil, never to rot, never to rust, never to be stolen. They can't be taken from you. That's your inheritance. But for a lot of people, that inheritance goes unclaimed. 
So there are a lot of Christians walking around feeling constantly defeated when God has already promised us total victory. So how is it that I'm walking in complete and total defeat? And he's promised us total victory. We've yet to claim our inheritance. And that's why Paul spends three chapters outlining, this is your inheritance. Now, these blessings that God gives us, they come in a specific form. And the form that they take, listen, the form that God's blessings take in your life is identity. Christ gives us a new identity. Now, what's interesting about that is as you look around at our world today, it's full of people who are experiencing an identity crisis. We got people who are confused at a multitude of levels on the most basic levels about who they are. We got people saying, you know, I identify as this, or, you know, I identify as that. And there are 27 different genders that you can choose from on your Facebook profile page. Let's just say this. People are confused about their identity. What about you? Do you know who you are? Remember that line from Alice in Wonderland, the, the caterpillar? Who are you? <laughs> Do you know who you are? Like when you go to a, maybe a work event or maybe you go to a party, something like that, they put that little name tag on your chest and it says, hello, my name is, and then there's a blank underneath it where you're supposed to write your name. And did you know that the devil wants to fill in that blank for you? And he wants to give you an identity. Did you know that society wants to give you a label? It wants to hand you an identity. It wants to tell you that you're worthless. It wants to tell you that you're unlovable, unsalvageable, unsavable, unredeemable. The devil wants you to think that you are nobody, a waste, a loser. And these are the labels that he sticks on us and he tries to fill in that blank with. But his labels can't stick when you know who God says you are. So this, guys, is why it's so important that we are grounded in our identity in Christ. So who are you in the eyes of God? Not who do other people see you as. Not how do you see yourself. I want to know, do you know who God says you are tonight? Because that's what we're going to be talking about. And there's a lot in here. So begin with me in verse 4. Who are you? Number one, you are chosen. Verse four, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. To the person in here who feels unwanted, unworthy, unloved, I want you to know something, that God is walking through this room, and he has his eyes on you, and he says, I choose you. I choose you. I love you. You aren't the last one left on the fence. God is pointing his finger at you, and you need to feel that tonight. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 is a beautiful verse. It says this, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God, listen, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. I love that phrase. He chose you as his treasured possession. The word treasure defines 
a quantity of precious metals or gems or other valuable objects. Now, now, when you see yourself, you're like, I don't see a diamond when I look at me. I don't even see a diamond in the rough. I'm, I'm like not even a lump of coal. No, no, no. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And the thing is considered valuable based on two criteria. The first is how rare it is. Did you know that you don't share a fingerprint with anybody else on this planet? When God created you, he literally broke the mold. There has never been anyone like you. There will never be anyone like you. You are unique. You are specifically designed designed by your creator to fulfill a purpose on this planet that nobody else can fulfill. You are rare. The other thing that determines a value of an object is what somebody is willing to pay for it. What does that say about you? Knowing what Jesus paid to purchase you when he hung on the cross and bought you with his own blood. No higher price could ever be paid than the sinless, spotless, precious blood of the Lamb of God. That makes you extremely valuable to God. Will you just preach to the person next to you and just tell them, you are a treasure? And notice, too, how it says he chose us before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, again, we look at ourselves, and I do not see holy. I do not see blameless. Anybody else? We're all in the same boat. But notice, it's not that we see ourselves that way. It's how he sees us. When God looks at you because he's looking at you through the lens of his son, Jesus Christ, through the robe of his righteousness, he sees you as holy and blameless. You see the mess, he sees the masterpiece. You see the flaws, he sees the finished work. You see, all of you are familiar with the work of Michelangelo, one of the greatest artists of the Renaissance period of all time, let's say it. And he has this sculpture, the David, in Rome, and I'm sure you've seen pictures of it, and it looks almost lifelike. It's incredible. It's considered the greatest sculpture of all time by, by all uh, people you know, who have opinions on such things. But did you know this? That block of marble that Michelangelo used to carve that sculpture, did you know that that same block of marble had already been rejected by two of Michelangelo's contemporaries, artists of a previous era who tried to work on it and both concluded that the marble, although it was exquisite, it was, it was filled with flaws that made it unworkable. And so they rejected it. And this rock sat in a quarry for four decades untouched by other artists until Michelangelo came along. And he saw something in that block of marble that no one else could see. Where they saw flaws, he saw something else. He saw potential. And so he picked up his hammer and his chisel, and he began to go to work. And, and the history books tell us that he spent the next three years chiseling away at this block of marble. He wouldn't eat much. He wouldn't sleep much. And when he did sleep, he slept at the foot or the base of the statue. He worked days. He worked nights. He worked in the sun. He worked in the pouring rain with his clothes sopping wet. And then at the end of three years, he finished it. And the work revealed a masterpiece. When asked about his process for sculpting this incredible work of art, Michelangelo responded by saying, listen, I love this. Every block of stone has a statue inside it. And it's the task of the sculptor to discover it. I saw the angel in the marble, 
and I carved until I set him free. Michelangelo saw something in that block of marble that no one else could see, and God sees something in you. Nobody else might see it. But God sees it. You're not a blockhead. (laughs) God sees potential in you, divine potential, and he's going to work on you. With the chisel of his word is not my word like a hammer, the prophet declared. And he uses the mallet of circumstances. And he's tearing away everything that does not resemble Jesus Christ in you so that by the time you stand in his presence, you will reflect his glory. And then everyone will know this is what God had in mind. And just when somebody gives you a hard time or when you're tempted to be hard on yourself, just remind yourself, I'm a work in progress. And God's not finished yet. And he promised that the good work he started in me, he's going to see it through to completion. Can somebody please say amen? He chose you, holy and blameless in his sight. Verse 5, he predestined us. We've got a long way to go. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. You are chosen, number one. Number two, who are you? You are adopted. In ancient Roman culture, the process of adoption involved several carefully prescribed legal procedures. First, a father chose the child he wanted to adopt and bring into his family. After that, the child's legal name and social relationships to his natural family were all severed, and he was brought into the family. Next, all his previous debts and obligations were erased if they had ever existed. Finally, the child was given a new name, and he was given the prestige and the privilege as any of the father's natural children, including that of becoming an heir in his family. And as you think about that picture, it's so beautiful. It paints for us a wonderful picture of what our Heavenly Father has done for us in adopting us into his family. You see, our Heavenly Father chose us to be adopted into his forever family. Now, this relational aspect of Christianity, in my opinion, is something that distinguishes it from the other world religions that are out there. The other deities and gods and metaphysical forces that represent these other world religions might demand of their adherents that they come and make sacrifices and bow before them to give obeisance to them. But God is the only one who says, I'm a father, and I want to bring you into my family and make you a son or a daughter. I love how John the Apostle put it in 1 John 1.3. He said, behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons of God. And when he says, behold, he's saying, stop and stare. Take time. Don't breeze past this. Don't blow by this. Behold the manner. Now, the word manner there, it speaks of a a kind or a type of love that is foreign or even alien to us. It's a love unlike the love that this world offers. It's a love that, that can't be described or can't be defined. It's not standard or ordinary. It's altogether different. It's unimaginable. It's overwhelming, and it never stops. God brings us into his family, but he doesn't stop there. He also severs the legal and social ties we had to sin. Colossians 2.14 says it like this. He canceled the charge of our, our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. 
the list of debts that you had incurred because of your sin, those things have been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. You've been given all the rights, prestige, privilege, and eternal inheritance of a son. Who are you? You are chosen. Who are you? You are adopted. You are a son or a daughter of the king. Verses 7 and 8, who are you? You are redeemed and forgiven. Look with me at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he lavished upon us. Now, we need to talk about this word redeemed because it comes from the ancient world. And in the ancient Roman world, there were as many as 6 million slaves in that population. By the way, that made up about half of the Roman population. So one out of every two people in Rome was a slave. These included men and women and boys and girls. They were sold and traded like cattle. It was horrible. But every so often, a generous benefactor would come along and he would purpose in his heart to buy one of these slaves off of the slave market and pay the price to redeem them. That's what the word redeem means, pay the price to purchase a slave. And then he would set them free. And Paul grabs hold of that language to describe what Jesus has done for us. You see, the Bible is really clear that whoever commits sin becomes the slave to sin. Romans 6 talks about this. And so through our great, 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 great grandfather, Adam, when he sinned, we were all with him in Adam, in his loins, as one of his descendants. And so we sinned with him. And in that, we became slaves to a slave master, the devil. Well, Jesus came to set us free. And he paid the price with his blood on the cross. And there he defeated our enemy. And now through him, we're set free and given a purpose in God. Romans six seventeen says it like this. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you have been delivered. You've been delivered. In addition to having been redeemed, you've also been forgiven. I mean, it just gets better and better and better. I feel like Steve Jobs up here at the end of one of his Apple conferences. And he goes, oh, yeah, there's one more thing. And he rolls out the iPhone, you know. It just gets better and better and better. He says, you've been forgiven. And the cool thing about God is when he forgives our sin, he not only removes it completely, but according to scripture, he also forgets it immediately. He removes it as far as the east is from the west. But then he forgets it immediately. Listen to this verse. This is Isaiah 43, 25. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet. I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. They're gone. If I can quote that great baseball movie, The Sandlot, they're gone forever. <laughs> you, remember, uh, you remember these things? I was thinking of these. Anybody had one of these growing up? Yep. Yeah, it's just sketch. For those in the younger crowd over here, this was an iPad circa 1987. <laughs> this is what we did. This is how we had fun. You can draw on it, doodle on it. Well, just imagine, you know, on this such a sketch, Satan's there listing out your sins. Oh, there's John. 1975, he did this. There's Susie. Oh, last week she got drunk. There's Bill. 
last Tuesday, he flipped somebody off. And he goes through your sins. And you, you feel so bad about that. You come into church, and you're like, I can't believe I've done these things. And I'm so sorry, Lord. Please forgive me. And you know what God does with your sin? The moment you confess it to him, he shakes the Etch-a-Sketch. And when you shake the Etch-a-Sketch, you know what happens to everything on that list. It's gone forever, never to be retrieved. I just drew a beautiful picture up here of a wonderful unicorn or something. No, I'm kidding. It's gone forever, whatever I drew. And that's what God does with our sins. You say, that's great for God, but I can't shake the memory of what I did. I can't shake myself free from these haunting thoughts, from these guilty feelings, from this overwhelming sense of shame. I can't shake what they did to me. So what are you going to do about that? Because it's great that God can shake the Etch-a-Sketch and forgive my sin, but what about me? And this, guys, is why we got to go continually back to the cross over and over and over again. It's why we do communion in here each and every Wednesday when we gather, because at the foot of the cross, we're reminded of his grace that is lavished upon us, poured down that flows from heaven onto us. It never stops. And we need to continually go there, not just for ourselves, but for those who have sinned against us and wronged us. This is where that work takes place. We say, but what about what they did to me? Doesn't that matter? And God says, yeah, what they did matters. But what about what I did for you? That matters too. And it supersedes what they did to you. It's not saying that what they did doesn't matter. It's just saying that what I did for you on the cross is bigger and greater and has more weight. I love how Paul says that the forgiveness God bestowed on us is in accordance with his grace. It's, he lavished it. The idea there in that word, it's, it's a Greek word, perisuyo. And it means a superabundance of something, to be in excess, superfluous, to be over and above in quantity or quality. The idea is that God's not stingy with his grace. He's not just dripping grace on us. He's not leaking grace on us. It's not a trickle of grace that comes to us. It is Niagara Falls. And you're there at the bottom of Niagara Falls just sitting under the weight of all that water. That's God's grace flowing down to you. It's a superabundance of grace, and it never stops flowing. This is who you are, guys. You're chosen. You're adopted. You're redeemed. You're forgiven. And one more thing, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul talks about in verse 13. You were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, you were marked. You were sealed, in, in some translations, in him the pro with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Just really quickly, seals signified three things in the ancient world. They signified ownership, authority, and protection. When you sealed something, it was usually an insignia that was placed on the ring of a rich landowner or perhaps a powerful politician. And they would take that insignia ring, and they would dip it in wax, and they would seal a letter closed or perhaps an important document or a title deed to land. You remember in the Gospels where Pilate took his seal and he put it on Jesus' tomb to signify that this, this tomb is protected by Rome itself. Nothing can break it. <laughs> Little did he know. 
But the idea of the seal is, speaks of ownership. It speaks of authority, and it speaks of protection. And so Paul says, you're not just sealed with a what. You're sealed with a who. It's the Holy Spirit. And he is there to bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of the Father. You are under his protection. You have been gifted his authority. Now, what that means is this. When the enemy comes to lie to you and try to label you or try to hand you a false identity, you can turn around and you can say, that's not who I am. I'm not who the devil says I am. I'm not who culture says I am. I'm not who other people says I am. I am who my daddy says I am. And my daddy says I'm chosen. My daddy says I'm redeemed. My daddy says I'm adopted. My daddy says I'm forgiven. My daddy says I'm sealed and protected until the day he comes back for me because he said, I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you. But I'm coming back so that where I am there, you may be also. And in the meantime, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. He's going to lead and guide you into the truth. He's going to protect you from the enemy. He's going to convict you of sin and draw you back to me and open up new things to you through his word. All this stuff we're talking about, this is your identity. This is who you are. Grab hold of it. Run with it. You see, the devil doesn't want you to figure this out. And I'll tell you why. He knows that the second you Assume your God-given identity, you step into a whole new realm of authority. And some of you are unable to access your God-given authority because you haven't yet claimed your identity. And you can't walk in your authority until you know who you are in Christ. The two work like hand in glove. And that's why the devil is so hell-bent on keeping you disguised. He wants you to be confused about who you are. He wants you to think you're a loser, a nobody, a nothing. And God comes against that with the truth and says, you're a son, you're a daughter. You see, too many Christians are walking around like Jason Bourne. They've forgotten who they are. They don't know their true identity. And because of that, they lack authority. It's time to reclaim our identity in Christ. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I'm praying in this room, and I'm prophesying at the same time that there are Christians in here who are locked in a cage of lies. And tonight is the night that you want to set some people free. Hallelujah. Praise God. I believe that. I prophesy that. And so Jesus, we invite you into this time right now. Would you move powerfully? Would you speak? Would you knock on the door of every heart? Would you set captives free? Would you open the doors to those who are imprisoned and in bondage? Would you help us to embrace our God-given identity in Christ? Would you do that now, Jesus? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.